Welcome to episode one with Mike Burgess. This one was recorded back in March of 2018. Mike is a current colleague of mine at one of the colleges, universities uh, that I'm currently working at up in Manchester. Very, very insightful chat with Mike about his start in music, working as a producer and remixer his work with his label and various other areas, including um, some time in the radio sector. Um, we also covered his work as a management services company, something that I'm hopefully gonna get him back on for in the future in order to discuss a little bit about how that's gone. So enough with me, on with the show. The music industry at the moment, I think, is in the best place it's been for a while, in the sense that, like in my generation, our generation, it's certainly coming at it from like an electronic music point of view. Like we have music that's popular within culture that has never been popular within culture, and that is predominantly coming from a kind of the first wave of Black British music that really is kind of. Um, reached a mainstream audience and that's not to say we've not had that before obviously mm -hmm. but it's always felt a little bit um bits of the early 2000s with kind of garage and craig david and pop-up kind of what felt like were sort of pop-up artists on yeah. the sort of the peripheries and then obviously break into the mainstream um but then yeah it's just interesting to see what's gone on with with, with grime um and i think that's that's made things very exciting. And I think what's made it most exciting to me is the model is it's like a 70s punk kind of DIY thing. And I think that's the most exciting thing I've seen, certainly in my lifetime, as a music consumer and as mm -hmm. somebody who works in the industry. I think that's by far the most is exciting this, thing. Is this the best time at the moment for, for dance music? Electronic music, yeah. should we say, it's in general. In, it's an interesting one. Like in because that's your background. Within my lifetime, maybe not, but it's definitely not far off. I mean, we, we're certainly at a we're having a good a good period of that at the moment of electronic music doing its thing. But I don't know. I mean, you know, in theory, like most people would argue, from a sales and a monetary point of view, that. Um, the late 90s was a probably a more prolific period for dance music. Was that not a more prolific period for music in general? Because people were of buying course, stuff. Because people were buying stuff. That's, that's, not, an unreasonable, that's stuff. not an unreasonable point. That, that could well be the case. Um, so I suppose, I mean, given the fact that, you know, the 90s were important to both guitar and alternative music um, and electronic music, yeah, you're probably right about that. It probably is just the the period of people still buying physical products and you know stores being a thing still and downloads not and streams not but now we're in a position where you don't need 50 grand to record an album and you don't need a 50 grand marketing budget to have a number one record um, and I think culturally we're in a very interesting place 
musically from an electronic point of view and whether you want to include grime within that I suppose arguably it is within the electronic sphere mm -hmm. um, you know you can have an artist like Repton Conan have a number three record in the UK with a mixtape that has no marketing apart from social media presence you know and that is quite a beautiful thing mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter really whether it's a guitar band or whether it's a grime artist but I think <clears throat> where the industry is where culture is it's it's a great place to be and as a 33 year old in that like I keep saying this to people you know I've got a lot of friends my age who go oh you know music stale old music rah, 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 rah. and I'm like <laughs> well actually no I think it's the most exciting time in my life mm -hmm. that music has existed been consumed and I've been a part of something yeah. that feels like it's going somewhere How long have you been in music for? Since 08? Since forever, really. I mean, I suppose. So was music always. Yeah, I mean, like, so <clears throat> I went to a music school for my education. So I've got a, I've got a classical music background. Okay. Um, so I went to a school called Chetham's, which is in Manchester, which is like the kind of. There's about four or five of these places in the UK. Very, like, rigid classical music education. Got to 14, found decks and dance music and I was off. Hence why there is not a cello. In the yeah, 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 or as a tuba as it was at the time. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The coolest it, of it, all the, the instruments. It was bigger than me, you know, when I started. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was my background and then from that found electronic music and from that found kind of rave culture and clubbing and at quite an early age, at like sort of 16, was doing all that kind of thing and this was, you know, you didn't need a passport to get into a nightclub then, so it was like a different point to entry so yet again mm. we're we're talking as two people who very very early on realized that music was kind of where they wanted the to thing. end up yeah i think i was mm. maybe 15 mm -hmm. you were obviously younger you yeah. didn't know what that what it would be would yeah turn into mm. but it seems to be quite a common theme that it's a very it, you know you don't often hear about and I apologise to all accountants out there, but a 15-year-old yeah. who desperately wants to work in finance yes. or something like that, yeah, whereas yeah, yeah. you do, or maybe even younger than that, mm. whereas you do meet 10-year-olds who just want to sing, who yeah. just want to perform sure. or anything like that. That might change to yeah. they just want to work with performers. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's definitely something that happens at an early age. Mm. No doubt. That turned that kind of initial classical music background turned into yeah. electronic urban music. Pretty much. So yeah. where did the where did where did you cut your feet? Where did it all start? Um putting on events pretty much. Okay. You know, was was I think looking back on it, and I see this in a lot of young people that I work with, whether it's like teaching work, consultancy work, you know, whatever it is, being on a panel and speaking to people afterwards. Um just that kind of, that inherent like, uh, I guess experiencing things as a young person. So going to this club where I just went, this feels like, I mean, obviously I was 16, I hadn't got much of a point of reference, but like I'd been to other clubs and this club felt like it was the one. This was like the, the, the domain everybody felt very safe in and it was one of the only, to my knowledge, ever in Manchester certainly in that sort of late 90s to, um, you know, late noughties, if you like, 10-year period, where it was black, white, 
male, female, gay, straight, all in one space. And I know obviously people hark on about the Hacienda being that as well, but I, I have no point of reference with that because it wasn't my generation. Mm -hmm. So like, great if that was the case, but to my generation, that you know, the Phoenix, which was the venue, was that space. So it quite quickly became apparent to me that that was something I needed to get involved with a bit more. Yeah. So from there, I was just like, right, I'm going to do everything within my power to meet the people that run this and to get involved in some way. And it started out handing out flyers mm -hmm. in the freezing cold in December to, that was age 18, 17, 18. And then by the time I was 23, I was the op operations manager and I was running the whole thing. And it was, it was pretty much me and one of the founders were the business owners as such. So yeah, and then from there, I'd always been making music. You know, I'd got a waste of time music tech degree by this point. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then it was just that thing of, right, okay, we're making music. Oh, people think this music's actually quite good. This was like the MySpace kind of period where you could send music to people quite easily and people so were quite excited by oh, it. So about 07. Six, oh seven. Yeah, 06, um, we got quite a lot of traction on that music because blogs were still a thing that people were actually engaging with on a kind of, on a readership level. It wasn't just as we blogs have become now where it's more of like a PR thing. Right. It, people were actually reading these things, you know. Um, so we got some traction with like some bootlegs as we used to call them where they were like covers of other people's tracks in our style where we'd essentially taken like some hip hop tracks and turned them into house tracks. Um, they, they blew up really quick, DJ gigs came out of that and then off we went which doing the project called Heavy Feet which we did, um, which we did for five years, mm -hmm. pretty much like seven days a week. Went all over the world, Australia, America, you know, played the space in Ibiza, we did all those kind of like pinnacle moments if you like yeah. on a touring career and then yeah it's kind of from there we'd always self-managed through that period we had a friend who used to help us who was our MC. but then after that i was like the logistics the management stuff is what i'm good at um let me apply that to other people and kind of from there went into working with other people so okay here we are here we are five years on from that period still earning from the heavy feet stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. bits and pieces um we most of the money we made on a royalties basis was from australia um there's a reason for that it's quite an interesting story from what i understand from people who are on the ground in australia that i have good good relationships with um this used to work in the same way in the uk a while back years ago where you would have djs submit a weekly chart of what they were playing in the club that would then base like club charts and that kind of thing yeah i.e. what's popular, tracks, what are coming through before release, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Promo stage stuff. Now, in Australia for a period, the way APRA used to work this, as I understand, um, was that the DJs would submit chart reactions saying, this track, yeah, I'm playing this every week, blah, blah, blah. And they would calculate revenue on royalties for broadcast and you know, club play on that on the charts. So if you basically had a great mailing list of DJs in Australia <laughs> okay. and, and you could get people to obviously to enjoy the record and want to play it out. Yeah. But it was always about the power of that mailing list. Like mm -hmm. who did you have on that mailing list? Did they like you? Did they like your music? Were they actually playing it? So if you had music that was off the moment and you could get people to chart it, then you did quite well from a royalties perspective. And as we know with Australia and any other sort of you know territory outside of the uk you're looking at at least six to nine months possibly 12 months before that comes in so yeah. yes there are still little bits and pieces coming in from from those far-flung territories mm -hmm.
Why would you do a worldwide deal with an indie label who don't have any presence in that? In, in, in you know, I think it's not fair to say that entirely. Obviously, certain indie labels do have third-party partners in. You know, depends on the label. Of course, depends yeah, yeah. on where they are, who they've got. You know, but like, why do why do a deal for the world very quickly? We realised that after doing a couple of deals that probably should have been more profitable than they were, that actually the thing to do was to do, okay, right, well, you know, if you're a UK-based label, we'll happily give you UK and Europe. But after that, like, it's up to, it's up to you know, we will decide whether we want to give you Asia, Australia, Australasia, and, you know, mm-hmm. North America, for example. So the deals that we did that were most profitable were the deals where we had a track that was obviously good, um, we did UK EU deals and then we did Australia or Australasia and then North American deals and we signed separate agreements with separate labels to generate more revenue from people who had a presence on the ground who could actually do promo for you or mm-hmm. get your shows out there or whatever it was. So. It's still very traditional yeah. sense of it. It's not just you can do everything remotely from your bedroom and all that sort of stuff. No, which obviously, as we know, we can, but it's that thing of like, and I would never discourage anybody from releasing music for the world if they own the rights to it, but if you sign the rights away to somebody else and then I'm not saying you're going to have a sort of you know, search for sugar man scenario where suddenly you become massive in South Africa and you've given all your rights away to a UK label. But in that scenario, if that UK label then happens to go bust and then your rights are ended up being, you know, the rights end up then being owned by whoever liquidated or administrated the the company or the demise of the company, then suddenly you've got no way of actually monetizing anything product-wise in that territory or obviously you have to create something new. Mm -hmm. But yeah. You're you're currently working with an indie label at the moment yes I have an indie label you are you sound. Indie, yeah. yeah yeah so I, I do have an indie label yeah what's it like for the for indie labels at the moment it's hard work yeah, yeah I mean yeah it's, it's really more hard. so than it ever was or or what um, yeah I would say I mean again like I don't I don't want to be that biased indie label owning person just saying oh it's you're hard. allowed <laughs> yeah but I, I don't like being that guy no I don't know I don't I don't think it's is it harder? It's harder. I mean, without get, I'd, I'd never like being that person being like, oh, you know, there's too much noise out there online. It's hard to break through. But that is definitely the case. I mean, anybody with half an afternoon can create a track, create a label persona in inverted commas, buy one of these, you know, you either buy a £10 single deal set up with CD Baby or TuneCore and off you go, you have a label. Mm-hmm. Um, or you buy a record label in a box from Ditto or somebody like that, or you get an AWOL account or whatever. Anybody can do it. Now, what I think is interesting about the label front, and it's interesting seeing Atlantic as a major talking about this recently um, in the media, is it's how do you brand a label? You mm-hmm. can brand artists, you can, you can release great content from artists, but how do you get traction around the brand of the label? That's the thing at the moment that's becoming it's quite an art. It's quite a skilled art form to be able to do that. Where and are you getting that traction from? Where are you looking? Well, this to get is the thing because it's from? ultimately that's not necessarily a customer thing. Or is no, it? I mean, ideally it is, but it takes time. So it's that thing of like, from a dance music label perspective, you're always trying to go right. We need to be front page of iTunes for the dance category for that week of release. You know, or it's not dissimilar to being on the you know the front of HMV. When physicals were a thing and you could have the, the featured dance release of the week. Yeah. Um, can you get on the front page of iTunes? Can you get um, a Beatport feature on the genre page? Mm-hmm. Can you get Spotify, you know, it's going back to the playlist type scenario. Can you get Spotify to make you, 
you know, even if it's not like New Music Friday or Release Radar, but just some kind of you're on the dance music homepage as a new release. So by trying to get those spots, it tends to have, um, it, it will gem generate more awareness about the label, but ultimately it's usually the artist when you're a small indie label are gonna reap the rewards because people want to follow the artist, not always following the label. Mm -hmm. So it's that thing of then, right, okay, can we create social content that gives people a sense of what the brand is about? What are our values? Who are we? Why have we started this thing, et cetera, et cetera. Like all good PR and marketing, there needs to be a story. Yeah. So we, we've experimented with messing around with that kind of thing um, and had you know moderate levels of success with that. Um, we've had a break recently to, to kind of cut the story a bit shorter. We've had a break where the label hasn't been as much of a focus of ours as possible, generally because we've had other projects on the go. But um, also because we realised after a while that just putting out a single a month for the sake of appearing to be a consistent releasing label wasn't actually doing us any favours. Right. So... Um, you'd spend a lot of time and energy and sometimes money on putting out a single because you needed to keep up appearances of putting out a regular product. And then we were going, well, hang on, like we're not actually getting much from this. And we're certainly starting to put out records that we don't fully believe in, perhaps, mm -hmm. for the sake of keeping up the momentum. Right, yep. So we've basically, we've done two things. We've stopped doing single releases on a monthly basis which has then sort of morphed into, if we get great music or people send us great music, we will release that if we really believe in it and we'll release it whenever we want to release it. So we're kind of moving away from the little and often approach. Um, the other thing we've done is we've moved towards compilations because compilations ultimately are the best way, as far as I'm concerned, of trying to get traction across social media when it comes to a music product. So if you've got 12 to 16 artists involved in a release, and there's a really cool piece of artwork, and there's a really cool little t trailer or teaser video, and everybody feels invested in that product, and everybody's on a 50-50 net split of profit, and maybe some of those artists know each other, and they've done remixes of each other's work, and they all feel like they're in it together with us at the helm, and we're spending money on PR. Mm -hmm. You get all of those people that shout about that release the same day. It creates a much wider impact on social media. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much where we've, we've, we've headed towards doing stuff like that. The burning question there is, mm. why did you start it in the first place? What, dri what drives someone to start a, an indie label these days? Um, I mean... When I, there are places like CD Baby and Ditto Music and things like that that can just self release. Yeah. I mean, I think from a dance music perspective, it's probably slightly different from being a folk singer. I think most not most, all dance music artists that I speak to, producers, DJ types, they all want to be on a label. It's okay. Perception in dance music is we want to be on a label because if we're on a label, it, we get an instant audience or we get an instant credibility. Now, again, the thing is with dance music is you, you're here for one single then you're probably off to another label. Or maybe you're doing three singles maximum. Mm -hmm. But typically, in the early throes of a career, You've built a little bit of social media following. You've got some good tracks. You've whacked some stuff up on SoundCloud. You maybe have put a couple of things out on Spotify yourself. Maybe they get picked up or upstreamed or licensed to a slightly bigger label than just you on your own. And then realistically, if you want to get booked for gigs, you need to have an, you know, such and such a DJ, you know, 
DJ Joe blogs in brackets some sort of label affiliation mm -hmm. because DJ Joe blogs without label affiliation is just DJ Joe blogs. So typically young producers are still looking for that label association. If nothing else, it says it, it's, it's a sort of way of if you want to use an expression from hip hop, it's like co-signing somebody. It's just saying, right, this is validated. This is a verified yep. artist because they happen to be on some kind of label. It makes hence the, hence the need for coherent yeah. branding via the label in yes, that world. It's, of course, you've like, got to have a and standing. If, yeah, you know, if you yeah. look at Hot Creations as a house label, or you know, if you look at Ministry of Sound now owned by Sony or whatever, but like that branding is so important to be so consistent, and it becomes. And in a very long-winded way of going back to what I was saying about Atlantic before, Atlantic, I, I'm up from under, what I understand under the radar, Atlantic are also looking at themselves as a label at the moment. Now, obviously, a, a major part of Warner, um, they're going, well, hang on a sec. Atlantic's got a very cool back catalogue. Like, we need to do some merch. We need to do some brand awareness, brand activation stuff around Atlantic as a brand because it's a really cool brand. So like, let's do more. And if you go back 10 years, you used to be able to buy Atlantic Records t-shirts. Mm -hmm. Can't buy them anymore. I mean, you can buy a bootleg one off eBay. Yeah. Um, but I know that that's something that they're looking at at the moment okay. of trying to, and I think again, what's interesting about that is just some of the things, some of their signings, some of their key artists, actually to music fans who are open to more than one genre, they actually have some really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, it's just, I would buy an Atlantic Records t-shirt. I certainly wouldn't buy I probably wouldn't buy a Polydor t-shirt um, because I'm not that into some of their signings. But I think Atlantic have always been quite careful within reason about what they signed. Um, right. So it's interesting, again, about brand association and artists wanting to be with a certain brand. In the but also that kind of that tends to change from either side of the Atlantic Ocean as well. Mm -hmm. Atlantic in America mm -hmm. and Atlantic yep. in Europe. Mm -hmm aren't necessarily the same company, same style no, you're absolutely of company right. and all yeah, that I mean, sort of stuff. For a period, I remember Atlantic in the late 90s, mid 2000s, it was, from memory, quite a lot of kind of R&B type records with house remixes on the B-side, which the, the house remixes were then brought to the UK market for a way of kind of you know, bringing that mm -hmm. American R&B artist into the into into club culture or whatever. Um, so you're right, yeah. I mean, what Atlantic was doing in the UK at the time was definitely different from America. Yeah. What are the kind of the the three bits of advice for those individuals who want who are thinking of doing it themselves? Be that yeah. artists. Mm -hmm and self-releasing will be that uh, young entrepreneurs mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to cut their teeth. I mean, the first two things are always going to be have some fucking great music and ideally have a great story or have a great angle or have something that people actually give a shit about other than just having a good song, you know. Not that I would say it's now more than ever. I don't think that's necessarily fair to say, but I think due to the way we consume media, particularly in a visual medium, having a story is a very, very useful way of making your product stand out. So it's still very much find the right stuff to release. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, we can all... Don't just, just think you can release anything and it's going to get traction just because <coughs> you can do it. No, I mean, I mean, again, it depends. If you're a self, self-releasing artist on a label um, and it's your label and you're only releasing your stuff and you think it's good, 
I mean, I'm not going to take away from that. If somebody, if somebody really believes in themselves and that's what they want to do, like I'm, I'm all for it. But if you want to sign other artists and you want to actually create, if the label isn't just a vehicle for your music and it's actually a brand in its own right, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to make the distinguish, you know, so the, 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 the difference between the two, you can have an outlet. You, don't, you know, if you're Joe Bloggs as an artist, you could have Joe Bloggs Records. Joe Bloggs Records really doesn't have any added value. It's just the vehicle to release the music through Spotify. If you're Joe Bloggs Records and you also happen to have signed, you know, Danny Champion and Mike Burgess, then suddenly Joe Bloggs Records has a value and it needs to be something and it needs to have some something more. Well, what, what can what can those people who are providing that service offer mm-hmm. if they don't have deep pockets, let's say, to just spend money on stuff. I mean, again, it's going to depend on the artist that you're signing. I mean, ultimately, if you're a grassroots level artist who sets up a label and then in your hometown, the other, and yeah, one of the other folk acts who is a bit like you comes along and says, I quite like the logo you've got for your label. Have you ever thought about signing anyone else? I'd quite like to sort of be a part of this in some way. Then like, like absolutely do it but it's just that thing of saying well you know what are they getting for that and as you say if it's Mm. not money like is Mm. it moral support is it support gig options with the main artist on the label is it you know a and r advice maybe the 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 lead artist who owns the label happens to have a good home recording setup Mm -hmm. and can therefore so it can literally just be access to kit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And I mean, the way we've run that sound for the last couple of years is up until recently, we had a studio in Manchester where we said anyone we sign has free access to that room. So if you need to go and mix down a record without pissing off your neighbours, you can go there and do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that was... That so was, it isn't like, oh, you can only start a record label up if you've got an amount of money in the bank in order to nah. put... A product together and re- and distribute it and all that sort of stuff. I don't it's, think it's, so. It's, it's it's very very different. Yeah, I think where there's a will, there's a way, and I think ultimately, like if you want to do something, you don't need that much cash. I mean, I've had experience dealing with like, you know, deals that have cost an artist to do them. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side of that, like I'm dealing with, you know, an artist at the moment who is trying to like do a very large scale deal like seven figures and it's like well yeah and anything in between that you right. know so it's like yeah I, I don't I don't necessarily think Zero I mean I, I, I sat down with somebody yesterday and said we were talking about um what was the deal it was it was a fairly large scale thing again I mean it was like six figures are being used for marketing and content creation and this kind of thing mm-hmm. um and they were saying you know what should the marketing plan be and I said, you devise the marketing plan without budget. Like, don't let the budget be the guide of what you are going to do. Like, write down everything you want to do, and then we allocate budget to that later. It's not about sitting here and going, we've got 100 grand, so therefore that automatically means we need this, this, and this. It doesn't. What do you need to tell the story? Right. Let's look at it like that first, and then if you happen to have... 10 grand here, five grand there, 500 quid there to bolt into that marketing plan, great. But otherwise you need to find a way of doing it without necessarily needing stuff. And granted, yes, for certain things in the music industry, you do need money that buys you access. Mm -hmm. But I think the vast majority of stuff, radio included, which always seems to be the thing that people go, oh, we need five grand for a radio campaign. No, you don't. It depends what you're trying to do, but I don't think you do for everything. 
you've spent time working in radio. Yeah. With radio, how did that mm-hmm. come about? <laughs> um, <laughs> that was an ominous laugh. It's, it's an ominous laugh because, like anything, in a career like I've had and you've had, it tends to come from who you know. You know, who do you know in radio? Well, we were doing Heavy Feet for so long. We'd already got into doing radio then as presenters. And because we had a profile as music producers and artists, we were working with Unity Radio in Manchester, which is kind of like the biggest independent um, FM station that happens to do dance and urban music. Mm -hmm. And we built that up from like middle of the night on a Wednesday to then ending on like doing the Friday drive time show for the last sort of eight months when we were doing it. Um, So I already had a lot of experience of self-producing a show and um you know and presenting so then for one reason or another the um i just kind of decided that what i was doing with unity wasn't kind of taking me as far as i wanted it to go mm-hmm. um and um yeah i just thought well who do i know who's in radio and i was like oh i got a mate who's the managing director of wise buddha um, in london who produce you know, Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 4, one extra Asian network type shows. I'm going to go and do some shadowing. You know, so I got in touch with Dave and Dave said, yeah, we can get you in and do some shadowing with a show at Salford. So I then ended up um, working under uh, Kate Cocker, who is Marianne Hobbs' producer, um, and a guy called Jack Halson. Um, and I was, yeah, I was kind of like their deputy assistant producer so right. I sort of started off just being like I don't want paying I just want to shadow you I want to see how this works I want to know your systems I want to just see whether I like this or not mm-hmm. um, and yeah and I did nine months with Marianne Hobbs on her show in 2014 which was really yeah it was an interesting experience doing that so yeah it was kind of interesting going from the presenting to the BBC production role it was quite a different thing to do <laughs> Radio's lost a, comp- a whole generation of listeners. Yeah. People who don't, who go towards streaming services and YouTube and things like that instead of the radio. They might listen to the radio if they're in a cafe yeah. that, and it's on, or if they're at the office where they work or mm. wherever, but they but don't choice. choose yes. to, to turn it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and even I, when I'm listening to the radio, I listen to talk radio yeah, these fine. days. So where's but radio still is quite well it's seemingly a very very important part well i for any music musician any I, label i i think it is and it isn't i think there's, there's several different aspects of this we now have on air on sale as a concept so if the music is playing on radio one it is on spotify so there is no reason from a discovery point of view certainly from a daytime perspective, and to an extent with certain things on Specialist, um, there isn't a reason from a discovery point of view to listen to the radio, because you're not always going to hear something that isn't already available. There are certain Specialist shows that, yes, have got agreements in place with indie labels who are happy for, you know, Annie Mac to have that that track as a radio premiere on a Friday night. When did that... Start, I guess, or stop, depending on the, which the, perspective. As, it, as in the whole thing of when it's on radio, mm-hmm. you can listen to it. On air, on sale has been a, a thing that's been going on for a while. In the sense, it's been a campaign. Part of the industry has been saying this should be a thing. 
if it's available on the radio, it should be available to buy. That's where it came from originally. It was like a sales thing. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of uh, a last chance saloon attempt at being like, well, we need to get downloads. Downloads, downloads, downloads. MP3s, MP3s, MP3s. So if it's on the radio and people want it, instead of them ripping it, putting it on SoundCloud, getting ripped again, or some low quality YouTube radio rip, then getting ripped and no one making any money off it. If it's available on the radio, it should be available to buy. That's where this came from. Yep. As we then crept into streaming, I couldn't give you a year or a date or a month of when it then actually started to happen. <laughs> but from what I know is I've, I've started to realize this as a sort of now ex-radio listener. And that's only as of really the end of last year, end of 2017. I used to have the radio on all the time. I used to have one extra on all the time. Uh, six music a bit as well, but mainly one extra. And... I've now realised that I'm not, when even when I, I make myself put the radio on now and again for specialist shows, and it's quite rare that I'm coming across anything that I'm not then able to find on Spotify or that Discover Weekly release radio on New Music Friday isn't pushing my way at some point within yeah. the fortnight period. But how? How I mean, I think it was I think it was all the the iHeartMedia stuff that's gone because yeah. they've just gone into bankruptcy. Yeah, and you know, Clear Channel what mm -hmm. it what was literally could do no wrong, mm -hmm. owned everything. Well, say could do no wrong. Everybody in the industry hated it because yeah. it had homogenized yeah. this lovely thing of American independent yeah. commercial radio. And now it's in receivership, mm -hmm. bankruptcy. And um, so it's not just the UK. This is kind of happening everywhere. I mean, how much longer has radio got? <laughs> I mean, I was, at a, I was at a conference the other week and somebody said, I was making a joke to the guy who ran the conference, which is probably a silly mistake in hindsight. Um, <laughs> and he said, there was two panels on at the same time, the future of radio and the future of streaming. And I jokingly said to this guy, well, I'm not going to the future of radio because the future of radio is the future of streaming. Nice. And he wasn't very happy about that, but he did laugh and he did kind of get where I was coming from. And I think whilst I was being flippant about that, I do think there's something to be said about that. I mean, I saw... A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine who, who ironically is in radio, who makes radio for a living, mm -hmm. was in the car with his kids and he'd not got mobile reception on his phone or something like that. He said, I normally listen to Spotify with the kids on the way to school on the school room. As do and, I. Yes, and I had to put the radio on. And one of child one said, Dad, can you change the song? And he explained, no, it's the radio and da -da -da. And child two said, well, why would you want to listen to a song chosen by somebody else? And I think if you've got four and five-year-olds saying that, then yes. So, I mean, we go back to this thing of like, you know, the consumer is king. You know, that the, the level of choice that we have is well, A, exciting, but B, overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is why things like in the middle have come in, like New Music Friday and Release Radar, where it's like, ah, instead of being lost in a vast sea of new music, or music, generally, old and new, um, we will create some things in the middle that feel like a radio station to you. So I think that is generally what I listen to. Spotify Discover, radio, New Music Friday, Release Radar, you know, Discover Weekly, that's mainly what I listen to. I do have playlists as well. But. For you is, <clears throat> when you're releasing mm. singles, tracks, compilations, or whatever like that, when, when radio was one of the major parts of mm -hmm. the plot that yeah. you had to put together yeah. what's happening at press what's happening mm -hmm. at tv mm -hmm. what's happening at radio is that now oh let's well, let's see what's happening everywhere else and then 
we'll see if we can get someone on radio to play it. Again, factoring <laughs> in the fact that dance music is a slightly different way of working with radio, I mean, the only way we're going to get any radio play is on Radio 1, one extra, six music specialists. Like, that's the only place for the, the music that we make. And going back to a question you were asking earlier, like, the thing that you release as an indie label, you absolutely have to believe in it. Like, fundamentally, there's no point doing it otherwise. And we, we are and we do put out music that is a more bassy variant than what is currently going on in house music. Mm -hmm. And we like that, and that's always been our thing, and we're trying to bring more attention to that. So that's why we do it. So the why is we want to release music that other people aren't really kind of it kind of putting out in the hope that people will engage with it because it's a little bit different. So with radio, we have a very limited pool of people, DJs and producers of shows who we can target. Now, we used to target those people in advance of the release because that's always been the process with dance music and, you know, music. You targeted radio, you targeted bloggers, you targeted press weeks in advance of the release. <laughs> now, typically, I just add in, when I send a promo mail out, which is like, essentially, we just send it to all the DJs we have on our mailing list two weeks, three weeks in advance. I just add the radio DJs into that. So if they want to pick it up at the same point we're sending it to right. DJs to play in a club, great, they can pick it up. So you just but kind of, it's fairly rare. <coughs> I it's send. a catch-all thing yeah, now rather than, much, a, rather than right. We're going to have to focus yeah. on this for the next couple of days yeah. because yeah. those shows go out. Then it's yeah. kind of well, the, if they the, pick it up, they pick it up. I mean, <coughs> from a revenue point of view, if you've got publishing on the catalogue, obviously you want to be pushing the radio stuff because that's a good way of generating revenue on a PRS basis, but. As long as it's a station that you know you're definitely So, again, earn. I go back to the point of 1X6 yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Radio 1. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's just like, whatever. So, yeah. You, you started working with artists directly at a yeah. time mm -hmm. um, started with Delphic mm -hmm. start with Delphic or yeah, was there artists much. between that and then there was a few now Delphic are not a uh -huh. dance act well or anything like that so that was yeah. a kind of a, a shift in focus yeah was that just because you knew people and you knew things and that kind of transferred across the board pretty much yeah I mean <laughs> it's an interesting one again it's a who you know not what you know well it's a bit of what you know and who you know yeah um, those guys were making their second record. They'd spent three years making it, which, if anybody's listening to this, don't spend three years making your second record. Um, <laughs> if you're on a major, particularly. Um, Unless you're someone like... Adele. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting for Tool's album to come out. Okay, that's fine. been 12 years in the making. <laughs> okay. Well, 12 is probably more We're acceptable. all very excited they're in, they're in the studio at the moment. <laughs> exactly, that's cool. But like three, three years, no, no, that's sort of mid... 2010s period wasn't a good time to spend three years writing, writing a second record but anyway I digress um, I knew them socially through um, one of their girlfriends at the time and they were coming back from Atlanta and coming to my studio which was at the time in my mum's house and we'd have a couple of beers and they'd play me what they'd been doing and we just kind of got to know each other through that environment mm -hmm. um, and I was just really excited by what they were doing because I thought, and I still stand by the fact that that record is a great record. It just shouldn't have been their second album, probably in hindsight. Um, because ultimately, they were dancey, but they weren't DJ, producer, EDM dancey. Yeah. They were 
New Order dancey. Right. So it was like influenced by Orbital and Underworld and acts like that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't influenced by, you know, um, whatever the house music thing was of the time, you know, to sort of minimal techno, whatever it was, sort of Berlin, that sort of Berlin sound that was big around the same point they were. Um, and it's interesting because they came through releasing records on our um, R&S and um, Kitsune, the French label. Yep. So they kind of came through that very credible, cool indie dance kind of scene and then they Polydor picked them up and that's where the album came in. Uh -huh. But yeah, ultimately that was a, that was a, I know you socially, um, I really am excited about what you're making and they were really excited about the fact that we'd self-managed James and I as heavy feet for so many years and we'd basically done whatever the fuck we wanted to do whenever we wanted to do it and they mm -hmm. were coming at it from a grass is greener perspective of we're on a major label and we can't do any of that really <laughs> like we could we have some some scope but not yeah. as much as you guys do so that's kind of where that came from really was just doing that and then i worked with them for two years um you know went on tour with them kind of we decided that well was, was that around about the same time that you started working with Chris and Gabby as well? Or no, a bit late. That, I mean, Chris... Did that, Chris, did that come from your time with Yeah, with in Delphic, a way. I think Delphic, if you, want to, if you want to look at it from the perspective of they were the first artists that I'd kind of gone on to manage. I started out, like I always do, sort of facilitating, helping, being a useful pair of hands, becoming, you know, for want of a better phrase, invaluable to their operations, and then going, well, maybe we should do something more here. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time... They were looked after by Tony Perrin. Um, he used to look after Block Party and Theme Park and people like that. Um, and Tim Viggen, who who found Mike Skinner in the streets and the Zootons and people like that. And Tim, um, much to my amazement at the time, said, um, you know what, I think you know more about where the industry's going than I do. Um, and I will never forget that conversation. Um, <laughs> And, um, and yeah, so I kind of came in as the second manager. So when, when was that? When was that, that was conversation? Like two, 2013. So 2013, and you know, when we met up earlier, yeah. talking about uh, an article um, yeah. on Music Business Worldwide, yeah, yeah, which yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of talks about people from different industries coming into music business and saying, people don't really know what's going on in it. Or yeah. that. So, I mean, that sort of thing, that's not really something that's new in the no. business is it not it's probably going it's been going on since the 70s yeah 100% I think you know I keep saying this to young people that I work with as a manager as an advisor you know don't think you coming in in an industry age 21 means you know nothing and you have no value you have a lot of value you just need to understand what it is mm -hmm. and a lot of the time it's the fact that you are a modern day music consumer you understand the tech, you understand trends, you understand social media, you understand lots and lots of things that anyone about the age of 37 upwards probably has stopped caring about or having the time to think about. So, and I suppose that's just like me in lots and lots of scenarios of roles and projects that I've worked on where I've just happened to have a finger on the pulse, understood what the client wanted or what the project needed. Um, and even if you've not fully known exactly how to do that, you've had a pretty good idea of how it could work. Um, and I think that's pretty much what happened with Delphic is like, I mean, I suddenly went from having, you know, working with a, a Facebook page with 5,000 people on it with heavy feet to working on one with 85,000 people on it with Delphic. And suddenly it was like, right, we can do a lot here. Mm -hmm. We have an audience and we can actually, who've never really been tapped up. They weren't big on social media. 
So I kind of came in and started working under Polydor, which was a mistake at the time, but started working for Polydor with the band, um, doing their social media in mm -hmm. the run-up to the second album release. And we did a lot with that, and we managed to create something that was really, you know, exciting around that. Um, so from that, like, I mean, you know, I said I had a couple of years of working with them. We then, they came away from Polydor. We did an independent release, which has turned over a lot of money, actually, um, as an independent release, an eight-track mixtape called Get Familiar, which was, um, the band had some demos on a hard drive. The second album wasn't particularly critically received in a positive light. Um, and I said, well, if you were going to stop working together at any point, I think we should end on a positive. So we pulled together... Well, they had a load of stuff on a, on a hard drive in a studio that I'd moved them into in Manchester. And I was like, this is too good not to put out. We should just do it. Mm -hmm. So credit to the guys. They gave me pretty much, you know, clearance to do as I would within reason with it. And we spent two grand on that project, which was sort of split up between uh, sort of production management fee for me, product management, uh, mixing, mastering and, and some PR money. And that's turned over, you know, at least five or six times that um, over three years, four mm -hmm. years. Um, so it's that thing of, again, I mean, I know it's very easy to say, but you can spend a little and get quite a lot yeah, back yeah, yeah. sometimes. Well, it's something that I, I talk to a lot of, especially students about at the moment, is mm. that there's levels. Yeah. There's Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Who performs three nights on his own at Wembley to 90,000 people and walks yeah. away with tens of billions. Mm -hmm. But there's an awful lot of people who are earning a very, very nice living to pay their rent, to pay their mortgage yeah. from music. Yeah. In, in, in all of its ways that there is not a, you're either a failed musician or a successful musician because there's lots and lots of yeah. different forms of success. You're working with a number of artists, yeah. but you're not managing them. Is this something that you've chosen specifically because of just the nature of the business at the moment? Because you work with Delphic, you work with um, yeah. Gabby, Gabby Henshaw, Henshaw, yeah, I work with Gabby with... Chris Maiden, yeah. <clears throat> but you you mentioned that you were man you were Delphic's manager yeah. for a little bit, yeah. But would you still call yourself? No, I don't like. I don't, I don't. And is I, that the reason why you're kind of offering your services rather than offering to manage artists? Is it just a kind of a, a different way of packaging the same sort of services that a manager does? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I've done management in a conventional sense of, um, you know, 20% of gross, 20% of net, whatever, you know, sort of commission deal. I think sometimes that can work, sometimes it doesn't work. I think if you've got an act like Delphic who've, who've got to an extent where there is revenue coming in then doing a commission deal makes sense on that scenario um but that said some of the work that i did with them was on a more of a project basis you know it was a case of right okay we're doing this there's 500 quid in it we're doing this as a grand in it do you want to come on tour with us and, and be our support act and do our social media on the road this is what's available for that you know mm -hmm. so i don't know i think if you look at the way label services are going and you know various other types of services in the music industry i suppose i'm not a million miles away from that in a management capacity but i think the thing that differentiates me from being a manager and possibly from other people doing this type of thing or other, other managers is like my whole thing is is like whatever you will get from me in that capacity is um completely agenda free 
it's completely neutral and it's entirely in your best interests what I'm suggesting you do. Now that's not to say that there's lots and lots of managers out there that are entirely working only in the manager's best interests, but there have definitely been scenarios and it's very easy to be, again, with all due respect to managers, it's quite easy to get yourself in a situation where you suddenly find yourself doing deals with people on behalf of an artist because it's easier for you than trying to find a better option. And I okay. think that's a very dangerous that's a very dangerous game because if it, fundamentally it comes back down to your fiduciary duty and if you don't have a duty of care to your artist and you don't exercise that as well as you should um, on a moral and ethical and legal level, then that, that's that's difficult. You shouldn't shouldn't maybe be operating in that space. But also, do you think that it's it's changed like, the way that the industry works at the moment? The fact that it is that much easier for an artist for a creator at the yeah. very least to be much more self-sufficient yeah that a manager what was once a manager yeah like the you know the the, <coughs> the managers of u2 or michael jackson or whoever yeah. Back, yeah. you know back in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. it's a different role now and so yeah. it's kind of much more of a i'll jump in on this project because you are on tour at the moment yeah and then I will leave and go on to a project somewhere else yeah. rather than I am your manager from January the 1st to December the 1st. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's required. I also think that there's this thing where like now, and a lot of this has come from like the sort of slightly narcissistic sort of social media side of things where it's like, I need to be seen to be doing X or Y. And I think one of those things is I need to have a manager to be seen to be doing well. And I think there's something to be said about that in certain scenarios, but I think... You don't, most, most young artists don't need a manager. Most young artists just need to figure shit out for themselves and you know, have access to services like I provide or go to college and learn things or read books or watch YouTube videos. I, yeah, I mean, from where I am now as a 33 year old male you know, who's got 15 years nearly experience of doing this kind of thing uh, in in the North, like, I, I kind of couldn't be happier with the state of how things are in a regional sense, national sense. Yeah, probably going any bigger than that's unnecessary. But yeah, on a, on a regional level, things are great in Manchester. We're seeing artists who've been working as long as I have, if not longer, or for shorter periods as well, having great success in the UK and Europe as DJs and producers and MCs and artists, and that's fantastic. And that's not necessarily because it's got anything to do with them being from Manchester, but there is an aspect of Manchester is a very kind of in thing at the moment, and that's probably propelling that a bit. But there's a lot of great, great artists, great talent here. Um, as a manager, as somebody who offers management services, um, yeah, again, like I think it's a great place that we're at at the moment. And I think it's great from my perspective in the sense that I can offer management services and that be taken seriously and people actually want to pay for that and people understand the value of that. Do you reckon that's gonna be something that's gonna kick off a bit more? Yeah. You've got label services, you've got yeah. publishing services. Yeah. I think it's gonna be management There's, a, there's a difference between artist development services and management services. Artist development services, by all accounts and what I can make out, are not worth paying for when it's on a retainer basis, where it's like, you need to pay us 800 pounds a month and we will give you this. Now, most of those services that I've seen, I'm not a big fan of the way they're structured. For speaking to people who've engaged with those services, I don't think they're very mm, great in terms of what's, what's coming out of it for that person. Um, I do think, and I'm, I'm trying not to be biased here because I am 
in the throes of launching a service which will offer my my services on an hourly basis and it's not about saying um you know i mean for me it's it's about saying you can have me for an hour but you don't need me for a month because you shouldn't need me for a month because you should be learning how to do this stuff on your own two feet and if yeah. you need me for a month you probably don't you, you're probably not ready you probably don't need someone of my caliber for a month you probably need you know somebody who's five years younger than me who will happily like invest their time, you know, as I would have done five years ago. Um, I'm more about fixing sort of things that really need that dedicated focus from somebody who has my expertise. Let's have a chat for an hour and let's see what we can do. And here's a plan, go away and off you go. If you need to check in with me, just book in again, that's all good. But I don't want it to be, my whole thing at the moment is independence, not dependence. Um, so yes, I think there's gonna be a bit of a- nice. as a, a tagline right Yes. Now. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's it. Like, we, 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 that'll we, go on a t-shirt. Yes, independence, not independence. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, no, I think think where things are are good. I think um, I don't see any reason to be negative. I think we're in a really positive period when it comes to streaming, um, radio. I think the jury's still out about how that's gonna keep going. I think it's gonna become more of a visual medium, as we're seeing with BBC doing a lot more stuff on iPlayer. There's visual and video stuff. Um, but yeah, in, 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 in essence, I think it's the best time in my life to be a DIY artist or a self-releasing independent artist. Um, so yeah. What a nice way to end this. All Cheers, good. man. No worries, man. All good. So that was Mike Burgess. You can get in touch with Mike via his Twitter account, at soundwithmike, or on Instagram, soundwithmike, or on Facebook, at soundwithmike. The company, as you may have realised from all those various social medias, is www.soundwithmike.com. If you're an up-and-coming artist and want to get in touch with him, as his website suggests, he will have a 20-minute coffee with anybody for free. But that was Mike. So big thanks to Mike for giving up his time to talk with me. Um, and hopefully he'll be back in the future. You can get in touch with the podcast at behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at behindthebusinesspod. Please do follow the Instagram account for updates on uh, guests in the future and please do email the show with any questions that you have for me or any of the guests. Hopefully I will be putting these questions to the guests in future in order to then put that out as a podcast uh, next year.